0: But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at VortexOptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from VortexOptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're excited because we just got back from the NWTF convention. Actually, we haven't gone yet. We're recording this before the convention. Uh, But we're... Excited about this because we're doing another uh, Mississippi State University extension. Uh, their deer lab puts out these papers periodically, and this is one that we've referenced several times. We're going to go through it kind of like we did a couple weeks ago. Really excited about that. Uh, Jacob, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good, really good. I know this is coming out after NWTF, but I'm very excited about the show. So, Oh, for sure. You know, By the time awesome. this
0: episode came out, maybe some of you guys got to meet us at NWTF. Again, um, really excited about the whole event. It's so funny to be able to go see everybody, but... This week, again, the study that we're going to be talking about, I'm really interested in because, again, like Andrew, you mentioned, we've referenced this many a times on the podcast, but we've never actually gone in detail about the study. I think this is going to be something very fascinating. Actually, we referenced this study I guess it was last week. Yeah, last Thursday. Last Thursday's episode, we talked about this study a little bit without actually having the study in front of us. But this week, we're actually going to break it down for you guys um, and, and see the importance that uh, nutrition ber- versus genetics makes when it comes to you know quality deer in an area. Yeah, uh, for sure. which kind of goes back. I'll say this: Can I start this off? If you hear guys talk about this all the time, and last week I gave this example uh, when we had Richard fought on the podcast a couple times back in the day. Um, you Know he, he hunts on a part of Arkansas where you can, there's some very large deer, okay, public land, the whole 90 yards. And we reference uh Clifton Denny, who had talked to uh Richard back in the day about him wanting to kill pumping young deer every year. Well, Clifton lives in an area that very few 125 inch deer ever got killed there. And Richard's telling him, like, dude, if you want to do that, you need to go to an area that you know those deer live and actually you know you had that opportunity to kill his deer and the second clifton didn't he started killing pope and young deer every single year on public and this plays directly a part of uh, that kind of conversation which is, again, you know, is that a genetic issue where like, some areas just genetically don't have the the uh, the deer in the genes in order to produce larger bucks, or is it a nutrition issue? Um, and or we're, is it both? Or is it both, and we're going to talk <clears throat> about that. So it's very, very interesting, and this is something I've been very excited to be able to talk about. So uh, this is something definitely, guys, I think you're going to really enjoy, and we'll just hop on into it.
1: Yeah, uh, another thing, by the way, so we just talked about we had a, the NWTF convention this past weekend, this coming weekend, on February 24th, we've got the Weaver Meat Processing Hunters Meetup. Second annual Hunters Meetup. Uh, make sure you all come to that. It's a free event, family-friendly. Uh, there's going to be food and drink provided by Weaver Meat Processing. Uh, you can bring a, a buck and get it scored. You can you know, grab the mount off your wall that you killed back in the day, and you're like, man, I wonder what that thing scores. Like, never had it scored. You can bring it. And uh, and have it scored entered in the record book if you want to do that. Or in addition, to, like getting a deer scored, we've had a lot of listeners.
0: Reach out to us that they want to bring deer to get scored because they've scored it themselves and they want to see a, how close they got to oh, the, yeah. the official score of it. So again, if you measure a couple of your deer and you're just curious like how close you are, you can bring it and get it measured for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you decide, you know, if you makes, you know, um, the uh, Buckmaster's record book, you can you can pay. I think it's like twenty five bucks, whatever, yep. um, to be entered book. into the book. So you get you a book, book. I really don't care about the whole book thing, but it is kind of cool to get like an official yeah. score of some deer. So again, like I had a deer, I, I took my my velvet buck eight point. He was bigger than I thought he was. Yeah, and I never had put a tape to him, but I underestimated how big he was, and
1: I was pleasantly surprised. I overestimated how big my ten point was, which we just got back from old Daniel Williams. He's a uh, oh my gosh, I'm going to make everything fall over. Here he is. See that? <laughs> so I got this one scored last year, and he was smaller than I thought he was. So uh, so that's interesting. Yep. But uh, anyways, yeah, come get them scored. It's super fun, and we're going to be there. And uh, It's always fun to meet everybody, dude. It's a, it's always fun yeah. to, to meet listeners. Yeah, so. we'll
0: have Southern Outdoors and Apparel there. There'll be a lot of uh, <clears throat> past podcast guests there as well. Um, so it's going to be a really good time. I'm super excited to be able to kind of spend time with everybody for the whole day. Come and go as you want. Family friendly is going to be a really good time. So anyways, just want to let you all know before we hop on to the episode. But
1: Yes, sir. All right. Let's jump into it. This by, is, By the way, I uh-huh, mentioned uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: if you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever, listen to it. That's fine, but you might want to go to the YouTube channel. Again, the Southern been on yes. YouTube and watch this because we actually have a screen recording going, showing this actual study. We'll have the study linked and everything in the show notes too, but you can kind of follow along on YouTube and be able to kind of watch what we're discussing as we're going through the study.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> and this is, uh, again, this is all about... Uh, genetics and do the genetics really play a role? Like, are you just in an area that has bad genetics? Like, are you in a club in an area that has bad genetics? Or do you own land in an area? Or is it the nutrition? Uh, what can you do about it? And so, this is just going to be a really interesting kind of eye opening study. And I first saw this study. Years ago, on I believe it was Growing Deer TV, did like a segment on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grant Woods did a segment on this when it first came out. I believe this was 2017. I could be wrong about that, but pretty sure this is a uh, 2017. But this is the paper, the Role of Genetics and Nutrition in Deer Management. It's got a nice little velvet buck on there, Mississippi State, uh, and then the, the people listed here are Eric, Michael, Steve Damaris, Bronson Strickland, Amy Baylock, William McKinley, Chad. Help me out, Dake Dacus and Bill Hamrick. Chad, I'm sorry if I got your name wrong, brother. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Steve Maris and Bronson Strickland, I recognize those names from the last one. Uh, they also do the Deer University podcast, um, so they put out a lot of good stuff. But, all right, so similar to last time, we're just going to start running through this sucker, and I've got some high, highlights uh, going through here to kind of hit the high points, but there's a bunch in here that I'm not going to like read through. You can go read this yourself. We're going to link it in the show notes of both the podcast and the YouTube video, so you can pull this up and go read through it yourself. It's a really easy read. And again, I said this last time, but I'll say it again. Uh, good job to Mississippi State for putting this out in in a very consumable fashion. Mm-hmm. Like the, like anybody could read through this and get it. Yeah. You know, it's 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 very very approachable as opposed to like if you're reading something in a in a scientific journal, and you got to read the abstract, and it's just like.
0: Well, we've had a study like that before uh,
1: that was on deer movement. A different university had done it, and
0: I – I couldn't track what they were talking about for a lot of the conversation until we started pulling data off of it and actually we were able to put it into, you know, yeah. digital maps showing the points of all these deer and that's on our Patreon. Um, but yeah, no, this is this is really easy because again, you can kind of read through it and it's very easy to consume. So, yeah. But, they, but they kind don't of,
1: Use a bunch of wordy words.
0: Yeah. But to kind of hop into it, let, let's roll with
1: this. This all is right. interesting. <clears throat> so this is just kind of opening it up. Uh, research has clearly shown that proper nutrition for whitetail deer is important in expressing genetic potential for body growth and antler size. Yearling bucks raised on a 16% protein diet grew antlers twice as large as yearlings raised on an 8% protein diet. Uh, when continued, Boone and Crockett score at four years of age was 20 inches larger in the 16% protein group. The facts are clear. To produce the best quality deer, you must provide them with the opportunity to forage on the best quality plants. Maintaining appropriate deer density, practicing active habitat management, and planting supplemental forages are tried-and-true methods of improving diet quality for deer these actions will increase the body and antler size of the deer on your property I want to say something
0: real quick there's guys out there mm-hmm. they hear the, the protein content you know eight, you know 16 percent protein um, or maybe even higher they're like well dude I'm just gonna run protein pellets in my feeders mm-hmm. the, the, I think the problem with that is and this is something that I just mentioned especially when it comes to like the forage uh, the forage and best quality plants along with supplemental forages which are talking about food plots here, is, again, deer aren't just grazing. They're not just eating one food source. So, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you put supplemental, you know, protein pellets out or something like that. Deer might nibble on them, but they're not going to consume that all day long. That's not the only thing they're eating. That's a very small portion of what they're eating. So, when they're talking about, like, high-quality forage, like, when it comes to plants on your property, especially as a a private landowner, you know, having a very wide diversity of natural forage for them to feed on. And it's crazy when we've done – Again, walkthroughs with like our family farm when we had Alan Summerford and Kyle Lieber from the Native Habitat Project and Land the Legacy to come out. And they were naming off all these different plants that like me and Anthony, Anthony knew a couple of them. I didn't know really any of them for the most part, except for like, you know, stuff that we talk about in the podcast pretty regularly then they're like dude this right here has like 18 percent protein this has 25 protein yeah you know based off you know the, the uh on the plant species and stuff this is what's helping you grow your deer it's not mm-hmm. just your food plots because your food plots play a very small part yes. in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things because they're not always feeding in a food plot food plots not always available uh versus the the native browse out there so that, that's that's a good point you
1: know being brought very early in the study yeah definitely uh it goes on to say, recent research has shown that deer are more than just a product of what they eat. They're also a product of what their parents and grandparents ate. That kind of cuts to the heart of what we're about to get to. Uh, the Mississippi State University Deer Lab's latest research has discovered that deer body and antler size are also regulated by a, a phenomenon called epigenetics. Um, I don't really know what that word means. Let be honest with you. Let's Google it real quick. Epigenetics. Uh, basically what they're saying there. Let's see here. What's the uh, epigenetics is a study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Okay. <clears throat> so you should have read that a little slower for all the audio <laughs> listeners. <laughs> the study of how behaviors and environment can cause changes and affect the way your genes work. So, That kind of again cuts to the heart of where this is going about how uh, the environment controls uh, basically the the genetic factors that like present themselves in in a whitetail deer. So uh, I'm I'm not going to try to over explain it because they're going to get right to it. I I I
0: can say this from being a fat guy and losing some weight now. (laughs) You know, listen, dude. If if all you're eating is Krispy Kreme, Hunts Brothers Pizza, and uh, you know a a lot of fast food, dude. I don't care what your genetics say. You're going to be a fat SOB, okay? <laughs> Believe me, I've been there, done that. Still am. But, uh, you know, you start eating you start eating your meats and your whole foods and everything. You start losing some weight, and, you know, you kind
1: of start looking a little bit better. Same thing with these deer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. These deer need to be hammering some protein, just like everybody <laughs> else out there. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, extreme regional variation. This took place in Mississippi. So, essentially, what they did is they went and caught a bunch of wild deer. In different parts of the state, which they classified here, and we're about to get to it, and put them in cact- captivity. Do what? I, I, I have a question about this. After okay. doing okay. David
0: okay. Ellis's podcast, when we we're talking about collar deer and stuff, mm-hmm. I wonder what the conversation with landowners like. Did this happen on private landowners' property, or was this property that the state owned?
1: Because as know. a private landowner, I don't know if I'd want somebody to come in and catch my deer, take them off. Catching your deer. <laughs> I mean, what's the difference in killing them and catching them? I mean, would you let them come out and like shoot a doe? I'd shoot it if I keep the meat. I don't know. I'm just saying. I just I just thought
0: about this. Like I I wonder where they like actually like brought the deer in
1: from. But we'll kind of talk
0: about the regions and everything
1: here. So, and a lot of people are going to be able to relate with this uh, because you know there's going to be parts of your state that are. You know, pretty much every state has a, a part of the state that has better soil and, and then bad soil. But especially these uh, Gulf Coast states or any coastal state, there's like a coastal plain region mm-hmm. and then you kind of go up into some other, you know, more diverse <laughs> stuff. Uh, and this is exactly what they looked at here. So it says there's no surprise that Mississippi deer hunters, um, there's no surprise to Mississippi deer hunters that antler and body size differ among the state's soil regions. The Delta region tends to produce the largest bucks, whereas the harvest... Uh, whereas hunters harvest the smallest deer in the lower coastal plain uh, and the medium-sized deer in the thin lowest region. Um, uh, What is interesting is the extreme difference in body and antler sizes between the Delta and LCP. LCP is lower coastal plain, so that's going to be like that sandy soil type stuff, like poor quality soil region. Um, Delta bucks are 41 pounds heavier And 25 inches larger in Boone and Crockett score than LCP bucks at three years of age. Uh, Full understanding the causes has been a long-term quest of the deer lab. So there's also a map here, again, go to YouTube, that shows the uh, Mississippi soil region. So you got the delta area. And then you got basically the middle, the thin lowest region. Uh, I had to look that up. The lowest is basically like a soil type that they believe is deposited by wind. Okay, so that's again a different soil type, and then you got the lower coastal plain here in blue on the map, so you can see where that is, and it's where you think it is. It's down near the Gulf Coast. That lower coastal plain is, and that's what a lot of uh, like Florida and South Alabama, mm-hmm. I think, would be similar habitat to that. Um, The Delta region is home to large acreages of agriculture that provide an almost unlimited amount of high-quality forage for deer. Although a nuisance for some farmers, deer populations find an excellent summer forage supplement with soybeans, and wheat is often available during the fall and winter. In the LCP, the most common land use is timber production because of the low-quality soil in that region. Timber production can be a great source of revenue for the landowner, but how the timber is managed will have a pronounced effect, on the amount of deer forage produced, maximizing timber revenue will decrease the amount of deer forage uh, produced. When the forest canopies are dense and do not allow sunlight to hit the ground, deer forage will disappear. So th- we actually talk about this all the time mm-hmm. on the podcast because this, this that's what we hunt most of the time. Yeah. We're hunting timberland, uh, pine production kind of stuff, and there's a picture here. That actually does a really good job of demonstra- demonstrating <laughs> demonstrate uh, what what we call or what I've called on the podcast and in some videos we've done like the stem exclusion phase. Yeah. Okay, so this is where those pine trees grow up and the canopies grow into each other and just creates like an umbrella. There's nothing reaching the forest floor all that good cover all the good forage underneath just kind of dies out and that's those are the kind of pine trees you can just walk in between the rows and there's really nothing there Mm -hmm. so that's like uh that's that's people maximizing their timber revenue but because you're you're crowding out the pine tree or you're crowding the pine trees and there's nothing that can grow underneath you're using all the sunlight that's hitting your property to grow those pine trees uh, there's nothing really left for the deer or the quail or the turkeys or anything else underneath. Yep. Um, so a really good picture in here that kind of shows what that actually ends up looking like. Um, a true just, p- uh,
0: plantation ponds.
1: But also, <clears throat> that's a that's a really just good thing to note about what it says. Again, like that's a pretty um, important statement. Maximizing timber revenue will decrease the amount of deer forage produced. So maximizing timber revenue. You, if you live in somewhere in the southeast and you're hunting like a lease or a hunting club, you're probably hunting a timber company's land. Mm-hmm. What is their job? Their job is to maximize, maximize timber, timber revenue. revenue. So you can't really fault them for doing it. Like they have a responsibility. Uh, but that's why, I, in my opinion, it's important for us deer hunters to educate ourselves on this kind of stuff because then we can advocate for it down the road like maybe there's a solution where we can you know have really good timber management but in a way that also helps us bring the quail back Mm -hmm. and helps us have larger deer densities and i don't know what that solution is but the more we as hunters know about it the closer we can get to working to that solution um because a lot of people want to throw their hands up and get mad at the timber company which I get because it can be frustrating, but at the end of the day, it's their land and they have a financial responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. they have a responsibility to their shareholders to make money. Yep. Um,
0: but also, this kind of goes back to if if you're blessed with your own piece of private land that you own or family yes. owns, if you know timber harvest is important for you, which most private landowners it is, it's figuring out a, a good in between good workaround uh, where you're maximizing your timber harvest while still offering native browse on that property not yeah. just food pots, mm-hmm. not just supplemental feeding with bait or anything like that um and seeing you know what potentially could you do on that property through certain thinning processes to be all, uh, I can't talk yeah I can't talk you can't talk <laughs> <to myself. laughs> But to be able to allow for, you know, sunlight to hit the floor where you have, again, excessive amount of browse, which would be, you know, ideal in a situation, um, and be able to really produce, you know, a quality enough forage that these deer are going to be able to go out there and really showcase what they're capable of doing body weight wise. And then over, as we're hopefully going to learn, through a few generations, seeing the antler and everything,
1: antler production going up and everything else going up as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, although regional differences in body and antler size of deer in Mississippi are related to soil quality and land use, we could not ignore the concern that smaller antler size in some regions was due to genetic limitations in antler potential. These uh, concerns were supported by earlier research that differentiated two subspecies of white tailed deer within Mississippi. I did not know this. Uh, most of the state falls within the described ranges of, uh, <laughs> gosh dang it. You good at low. Oh. Uh, oh. Why did I not look up how to say this? Odysseus virginianus. Okay. Virginianus. The Virginia white-tailed deer. Virginia white-tailed deer, that's what we have in Bama, a lot through Georgia, um, Virginia, obviously, Tennessee, Kentucky. Like, that's that subspecies. I didn't realize there's like 32 subspecies of whitetails. Uh, the most, uh, like, one that a lot of people know would be uh, the coos deer. Coos deer is a... A different species of whitetail, or a subspecies of whitetail that lives out west. Mm-hmm. You got the key deer in South Florida. Well, that coastal plain in Mississippi is home to another one, the Virginianus osceola, because they're smaller size. So throughout Florida and that, again that coastal plain of South Mississippi and South Alabama and Florida is uh, Virginianus osceola. Interesting. How, how many people go
0: around tagging all, try to kill these different whitetails of these different subspecies? And I don't know, and like mountain on a plaque, whatever. Like, my I get my Virginia, I, I
1: know people do that because uh, the reason I was like, is that like a thing? So I looked it up, and one of the resources I found on the subspecies was uh, a publication by Whitetails Unlimited that uh that showed your Whitetail Grand Slam, yeah, you're like your Whitetail Grand Slam, like where all the subspecies are uh, of the ones that you can hunt because I don't think you can hunt key deer, uh, but anyways, um, probably can get one roadkill. Oh, I'm sure. I'll tell you what, you can get roadkill in the Keys. It's freaking iguanas. It is wild driving around down there. Like, you're driving down the road, and then suddenly, like, a 15-pound iguana just runs out and gets smoked by a car in front. Of you. They're everywhere. Anyways, uh, for example, let's say a buck's genes are coated to potentially grow antlers with a 140-inch Boone and Crockett score and a body weight of 190 pounds. But if the buck is born in an area with poor habitat quality and he consumes inadequate nutrition his entire life, he could be limited by his environment and only grow 120-inch class antlers and weigh about 150 pounds at maturity. This is a classic example of how the basic genetic model uh, showing how the environment influences the growth of an individual. If there were an actual genetic limit to body and antler size, the improved nutrition would not allow the Osceola subspecies living in the lower coastal plain to compensate and grow as large as the Delta deer. So basically, what they're saying is uh, the, all the, the deer that are living in the lower coastal plain, if you give them, if all things are suddenly equal. They should not catch up to the Delta deer if, it's, if their genetics are different. Correct. So if it's the and you know they also cover a lot in here about the restocking efforts and how it's kind of like a genetic mess and there's different genes kind of all over the place. So they do address that in here. We're not going to get into it, uh, but you can go read the paper and now, kind of make this own. is
0: now this you didn't highlight this, but this is kind of interesting so they released more than three thousand deer and some coming from as far away as wisconsin and mexico mexico now, i've never heard mexico but the interesting thing is when they're talking about uh genetic uh, signatures oh yeah that uh let's see where is it at uh the msu deer lab has confirmed that some differences in the genetic signatures of current mississippi deer populations correspond with the restocking program but there is no evidence that the wisconsin deer ever contributed to the current gene pool now this is something we Mm -hmm. talked about with uh mark turner yep who's another research biologist buddy of ours and he mentioned because in alabama same thing they had deer brought in from michigan wisconsin a bunch of these different places and that a lot of those deer based off the genetic studies uh or signatures, there's no example of them still prolific or uh proliferating proliferating in the gene pool currently the only one they found is in a very small portion of Alabama, where there's still a slight uh michigan gene yes yeah. sp- but supposedly there and one thing he brought up, which is real fascinating is because of like these deer and, and where they're raising these different uh subgroups of white-tailed deer the deer in the southeast because we go through a lot of drought periods that they're more at least this is what mark was saying they're more conditioned to dealing with EHD. Uh, which is uh, spread by a flying midge little flying insect where these northern strain deer are not conditioned to that so a lot of times when you bring a northern strain deer into the southeast it's going to die probably fairly quickly when most summers we have a certain period of drought and if they get around any kind of water they're going to get bit by one of those midges and probably die from it versus the southern deer are a little bit more accustomed to it and you don't see these giant die-offs from ehd and actually side note uh Blakely shot a deer this year. Yep, that had evidence of EHD with the jacked up hooves. Yep, and someone else I talked to killed a deer on some public in the same journal, yeah. you know, area. About, yeah, and had the same situation. So mm-hmm. it's like a lot of these southern deer. Um, well, we See, got a moth flying around in here. <laughs> it seems like a lot of these southern deer again can get through that where these northern strains can't, and that was the whole thing about the restocking effort. So there's a very good chance a lot of these deer that were brought down from you know far north of the United States or in the United States, you when know, they brought down here, they might have lived for a year or two before they got killed by EHD.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so they didn't live on and, and pass on their giant Michigan buck genes all over the place. <laughs> Which, again, it's like one of my favorite things is when we go to these trade shows talking to people from Michigan. Because people from Michigan complain about hunting in Michigan. Because it's, it's a tough state. There's a lot of pressure there. Oh, yeah. And they talk about how awful it is. And I'm like, dude, in Alabama, people are like, I found that Michigan strain on my property. You know? <laughs> I'm like, it's like the promised land. You know? Yeah. So, anyways. Uh, grass is always greener on the other side, folks. Uh, so, on this page, they've got another map of Mississippi. Again, uh, that shows you the different soil regions. So your delta, the thin lowest, which the thin uh, lowest region, again, is like kind of that middle ground. Like it's not terrible soil, but it's not great soil. Uh, and then the lower coastal plain. And it also has little black dots showing you where all the deer were collected from. So there's a, it's a pretty wide range of properties that they collected deer from. So pretty interesting. And uh, on here, they say, we hypothesize that if we fed all of these deer a highly nutritious diet, but their body and antler size remain different, then we could conclude that the regional variation is caused by genetic limitations. However, if deer with genetic backgrounds from regions with historically smaller body and antler size compensated and caught up to the bigger Delta deer when fed the same high quality diet, we can conclude that nutrition is the ultimate cause of regional variation. So again, they kind of lay out their case here. That's, that's their hypothesis that they're going into this with. And again, to lay it out, they caught all these deer. So these, these are pregnant does that they're catching on these properties. So they go out, and I guess they dart them. I don't, I don't know exactly how they caught them, but a bunch of pregnant does. They catch them, bring them to their facility, their captive facility, and let them go. All these does give birth to fawns, and so they're tracked. And then they once they're weaned, uh, all the fawns are fed the exact same diet. So the mother's removed from the picture, uh, and all of them are fed the same diet, and they track that. So that's the first generation, and then they let those does have fawns, and then they track the second generation. And
0: they're using the breeding for the other fa- like deer that same generation in that pen. Yeah. So presumably you're going to have bucks and does being born. Yes, and then as that generation gets to breeding of breeding age, those fawns, mm-hmm. now a year-and-a-half-year-old deer, probably two-year-old deer, are breeding, and then so on and so on.
1: Yeah. So basically, the wild deer ends up being the grandparent, and they look at the the offspring of the wild deer, and then the offspring of the wild deer's offspring. So they're looking at two generations. Okay? But again,
0: and again, but breeding them in their pens that are designated, again, delta deer in one area. Thin Lotus are in one area, and then the lower coastal
1: plains are in a different piece. Yeah, so they're not intermixing these at all. So, again, the genetics are all completely separate and stable. Uh, Wild-caught mothers gave birth to their fawns at the MSU Deer Lab captive facility. After the fawns were weaned, the fawns all ate the same high-quality diet, and their mothers were removed from the study. So, unlike their mothers, the first generation of captive-raised delta, thin lois, and lower coastal plain fawns all received the same high-quality diet, each fall, we measured body weight and antler size for regional comparison. Uh, so it's got a picture of a dude measuring a pretty nice buck right there in the captive facility. All right, first-generation results. They got some charts. This is where you need to go to YouTube, baby. And if you're already on YouTube, good job. We appreciate you. So they uh, they they compare body weight at three years and antler score at three years. And I'm going to read this, then we're going to kind of look at this chart. Uh, being raised on an optimum nutrition caused a moderate increase in growth of first-generation bucks compared to their wild predecessors. Over all three regions, body and antler size increased about 6%, but the pattern was not consistent among regions. Body weight for three-year-old bucks from the Delta and Thin Lois increased by 9 pounds, but lower coastal plain bucks remained essentially unchanged compared to their wild counterparts, roaming the nutritionally deprived region of (laughs) South Mississippi. God bless those people. God bless them. Uh, antler score was a different story. Bucks from the Delta remained essentially unchanged, whereas thin lowest and LCP bucks, lower coastal plain bucks increased seven inches more than their wild predecessors. Okay. So then we look at the graphs and yeah, so this is pretty interesting. The lower coastal plain. So again, the worst, uh, area of this study pretty much remained the same as far as body weight. Their body weight is a plus one. On the So you have, like, on this graph, the yellow is wild. The blue says F1, so that's like first first, generation first generation. And, yeah, it's just plus one on the body weight. So, so one pound. So no change. I guess that's probably within whatever margin of error they might have. Uh, but their antlers did get bigger, so that I found that kind of interesting. And also on the Delta, their antlers got smaller, so that's interesting. They didn't have no soybeans in there. <laughs>
0: that's oh, right. Oh, your, your buddy from your club, man, he's, like, oh, playing no. soybeans.
1: I can hear him now. I ought to send him this. Um. So that's again first generation results. That's pretty interesting. What what is what is your thoughts on that? I mean, because that would, if you're just looking at the first generation, that would seem to support the whole genetic thing. Like these genetics just suck. What do you think? I mean, yeah. For
0: the you mean know, especially when you look at the antler. Well, we look at the body weight. It's still incredibly different. I mean, your Delta deer. Uh, that first generation's you know pushing 190 ish plus pounds uh maybe a little bit higher than that where uh the lower coastal plain deer uh, again increased by roughly an average of one pound and they're like 140 something pounds at three years old Mm -hmm. um which again that's a that's a huge difference and it kind of goes back to like some of the areas that we've hunted in alabama where you go to like some areas and you're seeing guys kill 200 30-pound bucks. Yeah. Not, not all the time, but, like, you'll see deer like that come from, like, one region of the state. It's not on her roof. And then if you literally drive two hours, or not even that far, an hour in a different direction, like, the average mature buck might be 160 pounds. <laughs> yep. And it's like... So, that's, you know, it's kind of fascinating, but it's also kind of fascinating because you would think, again, I think the average person think about this, if they were fed super high-quality diet that very first year, you, you would see an increase. Or, you know, if they were fed from birth after they were weaned off a super high quality diet that you'd see a big difference in that first generation, but there's really not, especially when you're talking about body weights antlers and you plus seven inches, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, mm-hmm. taking a deer from, you know, sub Boone and Cro- or not Boone and Crockett <laughs> sub Pope and Young to, you know, almost getting to Pope and Young, but they're not, I mean, they're still not quite there, but it's kind of crazy. If you look at this, the, the, uh, lowest hill or the, uh, thin, thin lowest, those deer right there, Three years old outperformed the Delta deer at three years old, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious
1: to ask about that. Yeah, because, you know, that's why we need to go to Mississippi State. Yeah, and absolutely. Those cats.
0: Um, but again, the uh, lower coastal plains is still way down on the totem pole, uh, mm-hmm. which which is, again, just kind of fascinating. I mean, you're looking at it's, you know, 111, 112 inches uh, for the uh, thin lowest. And the Delta deer is probably hundred and eight, maybe yeah. inches, and then your uh, lower coastal plains is sitting around It's probably like ninety eight inches, yeah, like something like yeah, that, mid nineties. So, any, anyways, it's again kind of goes back to you know you see guys in the Midwest killing hundred and thirty inch deer at three years old, mm-hmm. and all of these there's not a single deer over a hundred 12 on this at three years old
1: yeah definitely and also i'll I'll note something here that they said earlier this is going to come in later in this study i guess but one thing that they pointed out that i found interesting when they were talking about uh nutrition and habitat they also uh talked about um like having a proper deer density Mm -hmm. so not having too many deer and you brought this up last week when we were talking with guys like Alan Summerford, uh, Adam and Ke- or Adam and Matt. Dang, I did what you did from Atlanta Legacy, um, talking about how a lot of people don't shoot enough does, and a lot of these midwestern states don't really necessarily have that problem, or or at least like the cream well, of the crop, because he was saying that Iowa used to have a lower deer density and bigger deer and bigger deer, and now Iowa's going downhill a little bit because yeah. everyone quit shooting does. Well, it's same thing. So yeah, and. I was talking to one of those
0: fellers and um we were just we were actually discussing that because he said there's some very big name people that have sold their farms in illinois in like mid you know 2017 2018 deer numbers got so high that there were so many deer like it was hard to kill enough of them yeah because it's not like you have unlimited doe tags and stuff like you do in alabama mm-hmm. you don't miss to beat. you can only kill five does oh really yeah
1: Oh, interesting. So,
0: Alabama's the Wild West. Uh, Tennessee's the Wild West, too. <laughs> part of Tennessee, you kill three does a day in Tennessee yeah. for the whole season. But um, but anyways, it, that happened in Illinois, where they saw, like, some of these people were selling their farms because it, they couldn't keep growing enough, you know, big enough deer um, because there were so many deer there. Moved to Iowa. Now, I was seeing that, which is kind of crazy for us Southerners to think, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, like, I was kind of going down here. There's still, like, really big deer there. But relatively speaking, compared to, like, 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. these guys who manage properties up there, like, they're seeing a, a big issue where there's now so many deer, not enough people are shooting does, mm-hmm. that it's it's hard to compete with that many mouths and producing enough food for them. Yeah. And uh, what's funny is, anybody's interested, what they told me is some of those guys are selling their farms there, and they're moving to Indiana. Because Indiana and parts of Indiana still have low deer numbers, but they have again the quality to grow some huge deer. In the last few years, we've seen some gigantic bucks come from Indiana. So that's the new state that's probably going to pop off the next couple
1: years. And we're going to ruin that one too. Well,
0: because again, people, I think that's something that's interesting in so many states, and that's something that uh, they were talking about with me is you. When you get to a state where it's like only big bucks, people are scared to shoot does. Yeah. And it's like kind of one of those things like, oh, I don't want to kill a doe, whether it's like, you know, she might carry that genetic to grow really big deer or, you know, I don't want to ruin a spot because there's some yeah. 180, 190-inch deer running around 200-inch deer.
1: where Hard I, to fault them for that.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I'm, you know, yeah. right so If you're hunting
1: a 190-inch deer, like, are you going to wax the first doe that walks out? Uh,
0: yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of the issue. But you go to one of these areas that has lower deer numbers, like a, just a, a smaller deer herd, but they have, again – as we'll learn maybe a little bit more about kind of the genetics, the nutritional aspect and everything to grow really large deer. Mm-hmm. That's the next hot spot to be able to find, you know, super large deer because if you can really make, high quality food source abundant on some big properties. Yeah. You could then in turn, again if it's a large enough property where you don't have to worry about neighbors necessarily killing it, which, you know, the average guy like us, I can't go buy four thousand acres. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get a lot of money and you know, you can buy and lease a bunch of area all in one continuous block, you could potentially make a difference where a deer might not leave that property other than yeah. a very short window of time. So he might be able to get six plus years old and be able to express his full potential. And then after, you know, four or five years, you might be growing two hundred plus inch deer.
1: Yeah, definitely. Interesting stuff. All right, now we're getting to the meat and taters of Second this whole thing. Second generation. All right, so I'm going to read some of this, and then we're going to hit these charts. The second generation was composed of deer born to mothers raised in our research pens on the optimal high-quality diet. That is, they're the offspring of the first-generation deer. Remember, the first-generation deer were all raised on the same high-quality diet, but their mothers were raised in the wild. Uh, we saw significant increases in the second generation.
0: With an exclamation point.
1: Yeah, they are excited about it. Uh, results in Figure 5 showed that bucks from the Delta, Thin Lois, and Lower Coastal Plain regions increased 32, 21, and 36 pounds, respectively, compared to the wild bucks from their respective regions. That's a whopping 18% improvement. Another exclamation mark. They're fired up. Uh, this second generation... Uh, lower coastal plain bucks grew body weights equivalent to the wild bucks from the delta region. Antler size displayed the same trend. Bucks from the delta, thin Louis, and lower coastal plain regions increased 5, 11, and 28 inches, respectively, compared to the wild bucks. The 28 inches for the lower coastal plain bucks was an amazing 32% improvement compared to their wild predecessors. Dude, look at that. Look at that graph. Dude, that is freaking
0: crazy. That's insane. So, so again, now, hopefully, you're on YouTube by this point, guys. Yeah, you know, and watching this and looking at these charts. This is fascinating. Now, the body weights still aren't, you know, comparable. Okay, now the, the well,
1: well, you say that, but okay, if you look at the original uh, Delta deer, right? So, the original Delta deer, it has the body weight. The wild deer was at uh, 185, 185, 190. By the time that second generation comes around, the lower coastal plain deer is about even with that delta deer. So, in my like, I, in my opinion, it would stand to reason, and they actually get to this here in a minute. That if you were to keep going after the se- third, fourth generation, it's going to keep catching up and catching up to the to the body weight. So, like now, the body weight of the delta deer on this graph is about two twenty. Uh, again, it started about one eighty five. Now it's two twenty. Whereas the lower coastal plain deer started at 140. about 40 140 145 and now it's at about 180 so again they made up that difference from the delta deer mm-hmm. um and then same thing with the uh, antler growth so the antler growth actually exceeded the original uh average score of the delta deer which is really interesting that is awesome holy yeah. crap to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast.
0: True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the precision hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far?
1: Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. and never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, thirty and fifty, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from thirty to fifty. And the fifty yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke
0: and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from True Lock. it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring you could head over to TrueLockChokes.com. that's t-r-u L-O-C-K-chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at com and save 10% on your order. Again, give Trulock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with Trulock. That's crazy, dude. That is, that is insane. That's, that's actually I mean, that, really crazy. To me, that's where you see the biggest similarity between... The Delta deer, the thin lowest, and the uh, lower coastal plains is on antlers. Antler mm-hmm. size at three years old. They're almost, I mean, spitting images of each other.
1: Oh, dude, they're right there. They're dead even across the top. I mean, just about. They're,
0: yeah, they're close. I mean, Delta's. I mean, just I mean an inch. A or little bit big, bigger. But it's like they're across the board. I mean, so much bigger. And then again, the 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 one you see the biggest jump from on both charts is the lower coastal plains. I mean, yeah. you know, 36 pounds heavier, uh, at three years old compared to like their wild counterpart. Um, and then at three years old, they're 28 inches bigger than their wild counterpart. Yeah. Which is insane.
1: Yeah. That's uh that is so impressive, man. And that, that should give people hope if you're managing a property, uh, and you, you're implementing habitat changes, it it shouldn't take that long to start seeing results, you know, I mean,
0: especially if you can going back to the abundance of food, just like what we're doing on the family farm. So Anthony has seen this with does specifically Mm -hmm. bucks as well, but especially with does. Uh, And we talked about this in past podcast episodes uh, about our family farm that uh, my uncle Anthony runs and has owned for years now. He came through, they did a big select cut on that property about 10 years ago, grew back up, you know, thick pines. They were just regenerated pines. He went through and mulched, Took a mulch head, and ju- or actually a brush head it wasn't a mulch head; it was a brush head on, on a skid steer, and cleared everything. Yep. Okay, to the point where now it looks like prairie. Okay. Yep. Um, now the the thing is, it, this is something we, we, I kind of talked to him this year. I kind of want to do a little update with him on. It. The abundance of food went through the roof. Mm-hmm. What dropped was the cover. OK, mm-hmm. so we had more tr- he had more deer uh, and then we also burned part of the property that they that they traditionally had bedded a whole bunch in. The thing is, since when he m- started mulching this property uh, about four, I think it was like three years ago when he first mulched it, he saw within a couple years, like just the body weights of does like he was killing does like t- typically you would kill does like a big does 90 pounds. Yeah, I think he's killed two deer, two does that were in 120 pound range um and he's seen nice. some bigger he's seen deer that bigger bigger on trail camera that he just hasn't been able to kill but in addition to that I, he doesn't know and we talked about this I don't know if it attracted higher quality bucks mm. but since he started doing some of that work starting about four years ago there's been bigger and bigger deer showing up on camera that he had never seen yeah and, and what Alan what Alan and Kyle talked about is it might have just a, like some of those deer are already in the area, mm-hmm. but because you have such a high quality food and everything else around you is like closed canopy or, or very or maybe lightly thin pines, um, you just sucked them you, all. You in. You sucked them all in, which is a two part issue. Mm-hmm. Part of it's great because they're there, but other part is they're eating all your food, so that means you need <laughs> yeah. to manage even harder. On, especially yeah. your does and take more does off the property, that limit as many mouse are on the property. But I mean, that's when he killed Hightower. Hightower had been lived on that property. That deer it was 13 and a half inches wide. Uh, official score was 139 and two eighths or six eighths, I think. Yeah, he's uh, As an eight point, just a huge deer, crazy mass on that deer. And, and he blew up. Mm-hmm. that last year and a half that he was on that, but pro- really last year he's on that property when a all, lot all of that work had been done and he was able to kill that deer. And after that, he started showing me photos. He had never showed me of, of these 140 plus inch deer running around the property <sighs> that one of his neighbors <sighs> killed one. And that was something that Alan and Kyle both talked about from a small property owner. You're doing a lot of this work, but like you really need to get your neighbors on board mm-hmm. and kind of like what you're trying to manage for and, and get them kind of bought in on, on the project. Because the thing is, your neighbors could reap some rewards of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And, like, his neighbor, who's got, like, a very small acreage, doesn't do anything with the acreage uh, with his property, he killed a giant ten-point on that place. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was that 140-plus-inch ten-point that Anthony had on camera, and he was was using Anthony's property a whole bunch. But he was mostly feeding and kind of bedding in there. But during the rut, that guy caught him coming through the property, which is fine. Again, it was mature deer, really nice deer, really big deer. And uh, it kind of goes back to, like – if you can get everybody on board of like what you're doing and kind of start seeing some success of the body weight yeah. changes and even maybe start seeing some antler changes after four or five years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're talking three, four generations. Um, it might get them a little more excited, to be like, okay, let's do some work on my property now.
1: Yeah. And see what could be done. Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, for logistical reasons, we had to end the study when the bucks were three years old, but that's not the end of the results. We were able to predict antler size at maturity based on growth rates from our other studies. The average antler size at three years of age for a first-generation lower coastal plain buck was 95 inches. Using this score as a basis for our prediction, first-generation lower coastal plain bucks would score at about 122 at six years of age so again they're estimating based on their studies that uh that deer that at three and a half is 95 inches at six and a half he'll probably be about 122 inches This means that after one generation of improved nutrition, lower coastal plain bucks are almost reaching the minimum requirements to be entered into the Pope and Young record books, a 125-inch minimum. The average antler score of the second-generation bucks was 116 inches. Again, this is using the score as a basis for our prediction. The second-generation lower coastal plain bucks would score about 147 inches at six years of age. You went from... A 95-inch deer to a 150, okay? Like, that's that's really impressive to me. So that's what I'm talking about where I'm saying that, uh, you know, like these changes that you implement, it's going to take time, but it's not like it's going to take 20 years.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So Well, uh, it kind of goes back to all all these trophy clubs. Yeah.
0: If you could have a trophy club, but if you can't manage the timber on that club and it's not managed in the correct way – it's not, I mean, yeah. You might, you'll have older age class deer, but it's not going to be able to express their full potential because of the food source limitations. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. We're, we're going to talk more about that in here in just a minute. Uh, you are what you eat, but you're also what your mother and her mother ate. Our results clearly show that deer in the lower coastal plain region of Mississippi are not genetically doomed to have smaller bodies and antlers, they're simply a product of their environment. Once nutrition was improved, lower coastal plain bucks started to display their genetic potential, but it took time. We feel confident that we, what we found was an epigenetic effect. This new epigenetic phenomenon explains how one's DNA can remain the same while its expression is altered by environmental conditions. One way to think about it is a series of switches within an animal's genes. If generations of family have lived in a low-quality habitat, then it's advantageous to turn off the switch, quote-unquote, for the genes that promote a large body and antlers. The advantage is that smaller animals are better suited to the uh, quality of forage in their environment. Yes? You know one
0: thing I (laughs) wish they would have predicted as well, not just antlers, but what the body size could have been.
1: Oh, yeah. I wish they, uh, that might have,
0: no, I don't think they did that. No. That's something I would, I would love to figure out. Because at three years old, these Delta deer are 220 pounds. At three? Dude. At three. Dude. We're talking like some, probably 270s right around, which you do see that every now and then. So you'll see guys yeah. in like Delta region of Mississippi, uh, also like parts of Louisiana, like Eastern Louisiana and also that Southern Arkansas that you'll see people that will kill a deer, put it on a scale and live weights, 270, pounds. I've heard of some almost breaking a 300 pound mark.
1: That is, I can't even imagine. I don't even know what a deer that big would look like. I can't imagine that. I know what my Iowa deer looked like, but also those deer,
0: bigger skeletal structure. I can't imagine that these deer down here, you know, our deer in the Southeast, at least in my experience, three to five inches shorter, Mm-hmm. And then, like, height-wise and then length-wise, at least that much, if not a little bit more than that. I mean, dude, you talk about a freak, as, as Travis Murray said, a bull, yearling, or a bull yearling. Bull
1: yearling. That's what it was like. <laughs> I mean, he's
0: just like this. Thing. Just, I mean, looks like he's been, he's, been hitting, he's been hitting some corn
1: piles, but also, you know, the weight rack. Yeah, that's it. right. Uh, it says, this off-switch, quote-unquote, keeps animals from growing larger in a particularly good year only to be hurt when forage quality returns to normal. Therefore, this new epigenetics model shows that in addition to the environment a buck experiences during his lifetime, the habitat quality experienced by his parents and grandparents is also critically important. So again, that's just, again, putting it in layman's terms, like that's just saying that, again flipping a switch um it's advantageous for them if they live in a really poor quality region where there's not much food it's better for them to be smaller it takes less food for them to live i guess if they're smaller. absolutely and, and also, it takes less resources to throw a 120 inch or a 95 inch rack as opposed to a 140 inch rack
0: does it talk about um well by the way that 95 inch rack that's for a three-year-old yes
1: Okay. Yes.
0: It's clarifying. But uh, one thing I don't know if it mentions in here and you can tell me is like the stress of like poor soul, poor, poor uh, brows, you yeah. know, variation for a deer. If you have high deer numbers in that area as well, that's even less food for them to eat, less quality food. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like a double whammy versus like an area, like again, like some of the Delta deer living in large large agriculture areas, you know, for that example. Yeah, there might be a lot of deer, but if you have thousands of acres, now it's only during certain times of the month or year when there's, you know, cover crop and then also, you know, soybeans, corn, all that kind of stuff that's planted, uh, cotton too, but there's more abundance in like large scale for them to feed at even yeah. though that they're browsing compared to like in an area where it's high deer numbers closed canopy forest there's a lot less for them to eat and again you start seeing those smaller bodies mm-hmm. uh and like that stress of like a mother a, a female uh, doe I almost said female doe i know there's a male doe but um i don't know if they identify that way not to ask <laughs> one. but again like the stress of those of those females being able to put on enough body weight in order to give, you know, their body enough fat in order to produce milk and everything, uh, is extremely stressful. And that's what it seems like as well on this is that, you know, once they kind of get over the stress of not having enough food and quality food, yes. It's like they can do what their, you know, genetically their genetic traits are, are built for.
1: Yeah. So definitely. That's awesome. Uh another interesting paragraph that kind of explains it. Although the first generation of bucks were raised on the same optimal diet, certain genes that code for growth were not, quote unquote, switched on. Their mothers had passed along a signal to their genes that essentially said, don't grow as big as you can because the environment simply won't support it. Uh, that's a disadvantage to being too big when food is limited. However, by the second generation, these genetic switches were turning on and signaling to the genes that it is now safe to grow larger because the mothers had good nutrition. This can be thought of as the mother inheriting her environment. If a mother inherits a high-quality environment, then she will pass that along to her fawns, and the same will occur if she inherits a low-quality environment. So this... This is really interesting, too, because, you know, we're kind of focusing on the lower coastal plain being, you know, a lot of people who hunt there probably just talk about how they have bad genetics, mm. when in reality, it's, it's the habitat and nutrition. Uh, but here's, here's an interesting paragraph, too, that looks at the other end of the spectrum. The deer in the Delta region exhibited a second important genetic result. We considered our Delta deer... To be the gold standard for body and antler growth by whitetail deer in Mississippi. Yet we observed a 32-pound increase in body weight and a five-inch increase in antler score. These results prove that even deer in the delta are not attaining their full potential in the wild and could benefit from improved habitat quality. So I love that they threw that in there because even the cream of the crop down here in the Mississippi Delta is not hitting its full potential. You know, there's still, if you live in the Delta, you can still increase your body weights by 32 pounds. Like that's super impressive. There's a lot more meat in the freezer. That's a lot more meat in the freezer. That's exactly right. You know what? They didn't didn't track this either. I wonder how the does performed.
0: Like how much bigger body weight the does got year over year. I know they were just looking at buck
1: size. Yeah.
0: But I'd be curious, like did your does go from like say the Delta, maybe 120 pounds. uh, You started having 140, 150 pound does running around.
1: Let's go ask him.
0: That'd be that'd be very
1: interesting as well. <laughs> I know some people don't get excited about that, but you know that'd be kind of an hey, interesting. Still in that freezer, boy. Uh, all right, these are their three main takeaways. I'm going to read them off. Uh, number one: stop worrying about genetics. Although genetics do control body and antler growth. Of individuals, they are not the cause of regional variation in body and antler size. Besides that, our other research has provided that genetics cannot be managed in free-ranging populations. No colon deer. No colon deer. Uh, number two, focus on nutrition. Uh, these results are empowering because they show that show a clear link between body and antler quality and nutrition, which is something you can improve on your property. Habitat management and supplemental food plots will yield results. And number three. Be realistic about expectations because big changes take time. We live in a society where everything is at our fingertips. If we want it now, we can have it now. The mindset should not be carried into our deer management. Although individual deer will respond to increased nutrition in the short term, it will take five to ten years of consistently improved nutrition for the genetic switches, quote-unquote, to be turned on and and, uh, stimulate uh, greater expansion or... stimulate greater expression of their genetic potential once turned on you will see far greater improvements on the population level so uh all great points there you know it's going to take five to ten years and you might see uh individual improvements but it's going to take longer which Mm -hmm. uh actually gets me really excited about a lot of uh places that we hunt around alabama Mm -hmm. whether it just be uh some wmas like the you know the state and at least here in alabama the state leased a lot of WMAs in the past and a lot of those are going away because it's a lease and you know, that's perishable Yeah, that the state doesn't own that lease. Uh, so we've lost a lot of WMA land in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, but they are replacing it. They're buying stuff with forever wild. They have bought some management areas. They, they, a lot of the stuff they're buying is going to SOAs, which people have mixed opinions about myself included. Uh, but, on those WMAs that they own, they're implementing a lot of the things that these studies are talking about. They're cutting timber. They're burning. They're doing food plots and everything. Like, they're, they're going the whole nine yards, and a lot of that has only been going on for a couple of years now, so we're not really seeing the full effect of that. So that kind of excites me for not only, first of all, some of the SOAs that we've hunted and seen what they produce right now where they literally, like one of them, they had just cut this terrible timber all over this place, and they had cut it like the year before we hunted there, and that's when I killed that 10-point I held up earlier. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wh- and we saw what was walking around in there, so I'm like, what's that place going to be like in 10 years?
0: Or five years.
1: Bro. Along with some WMAs that we hunt too, where they, they manage out there. So r- really excited to see that. Uh, what are your thoughts? I, I'll say this. As a, as a land
0: owner, mm-hmm. this would get me so excited. Especially if you had some, again, some acreage you could work with, whether it's 50 acres, 100 yeah. acres, 500 acres, 1,000 acres, whatever, of like things that you could do. And also another great reason to have some really good neighbors and build good relationships with them, where you can have, as uh, Adam and Keith talk about, or <laughs> Adam and Matt. <laughs> sorry, guys. Adam, Keith, and Matt, though. Yeah. At, we always like, call them Adam and Keith. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, Matt. But... Uh, but get the, what those guys have talked about, like building a good neighborhood around your property where like everybody's on the same page. Like it's one thing if you own 100 acres, but if you can get all the landowners around you, you know, that kind of touch you and maybe it's 2,000 acres all on the same page and kind of doing some similar stuff. Y'all all can benefit the reward of doing work like this on your property. Again, yeah, yeah, doing some food plots and stuff, but really focus on the habitat and what can be done to allow more sunlight to hit the ground, more of the native browse to pop up to give the deer much more abundance of food source for them, and then see how that progresses. And then also coming together with a management strategy. You know, try it. Sorry, see if there's something y'all can do. You know, management strategy, uh, you know, trying to allow some of your deer to kind of get to maturity and see what they're capable of doing. Um, Mm -hmm. To me, that gets me really excited, even though I don't own any property, but like for people that do you know, trying to focus on something like that, you could have like some huge, huge, huge benefits, especially if you're not in an area that has super high quality deer right now, when it comes to like antler size and body size of deer. But also if you do live in an area like that, it could get better. That's what this study shows. It can get better. You might think you're in the cream of the crop. Well, it can get better than that, just with a little bit of work and some uh, thought process put behind it.
1: A hundred percent. Also on here, I want to show that, you know, earlier we looked at the pine plantation that was the stem exclusion phase it was shaded out terrible awful no forage for deer Uh, here's a picture that is the antithesis of that this is a thinned pine stand when we talk about thinned pines this is what we're talking about Uh, it's this picture right here again if you're not watching on youtube go to youtube and you'll be able to see it but you can see that if you look up at the canopies of the trees they're not touching there's there's plenty of room between all these trees and if you look at the understory there's just all kinds of stuff see, growing. Gold,
0: goldenrod right there growing. Yeah, there's some
1: goldenrod growing. There's uh, looks like some greenbrier possibly down in here, maybe ragweed. Uh, and then, of course, there's some saplings growing up, maybe sweet gums or but something. But it shows in the photo above it, again,
0: running a fire through it mm-hmm. and getting everything on a rotation. So every few years, you get back to that stage. Because if not, in you know, the southeast, we have very long growing seasons. Same thing that we experienced at the farm. When you go through and clear cut and you don't manage it right after that clear cut, it becomes a jungle, which has thick cover but the problem is it's thick without not a lot there's not a lot of food there's not a lot of understory underneath it so again there's deer that bed on it but they're leaving that property to go feed on other places because there's nothing there especially if oaks aren't dropping versus this example here when you're rotating stuff through fire and you keep it during that stage at early successional habitat there's an abundance of cover and food on that property and you do it in checkerboard effect which a lot of these land managers talk about so at every stage of the year there's something where there's again thicker cover maybe three three years since it's been a burn there's some small sapins growing up in it you have a lot thicker cover you have the stuff that's two years old that you have you know chest high you know grasses forbs growing up in it and then you have the fresh burn in the open area that again is going to have very young growth after that burns gone through like anthony at the farm i talked to him about four or five weeks after we did the fire or we did the burn down there, and it started raining. And he's like, the whole property, like everything we burned, looks like a food plot. Mm. It's just green shoots, like five inches long, and the deer are mowing it down. Yeah. So it's like you have like again the checkerboard effect, and that's what we're about to do. It's another fire on a different portion that hasn't been burned yet. They kind of get back into a rhythm where we start doing smaller sections going back and forth every year. Um, so we have like the variety on a property.
1: Yeah, definitely, um, and you know. Again, going back to a lot of people don't own their own land, but maybe if you're in a hunting club or something, just depends on who owns it. And I'm just thinking out loud here because, you know, if you don't own it and you can't manage the timber, you're kind of SOL. But, uh, you know, a lot of timber companies come in and do thinnings like Westervelt on our club has come in and they've done thinnings in, in several parts. But after they thin it, they don't really do anything with it. Uh, they kind of all the saplings grow up and it kind of goes through, you know, a cycle and it's good for a little bit and then it kind of gets crappy. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's worth asking the forester, or the property manager, uh, Hey, like what if the club uh, paid for a prescribed fire? You know, what if we, what if we paid to have you out here, have like uh, someone who's like certified mm-hmm. like a, uh, what do they call it? Like a burn master or something like that. Uh, who has like that certification to come out and oversee it Um it's not expensive to go burn something. It's As far as land management goes, it's pretty cheap. Um, but like I think about my club, and we had the conversation on Thursday about the guy who's wanting to plant bean fields. I would much rather, much rather just go burn some pines on the property than plant food plots.
0: Well, especially the pines that's been slight cut. If yeah, it's closed
1: the- canopy, it's not going to do anything. But if it's... Again,
0: the slut-cut pines, saplings grow up, like the spot I was hunting the last day of season. You ran a fire through that, it mm-hmm. would be primo, not only for deer, for turkeys too. Yeah, And also quail would benefit. Um, so, yeah, that, that's 100% right. And that would be an interesting conversation. It'd be f- interesting to maybe interview somebody from Westervelt. Yeah. And, and get their take on, like, you know, is it a broad scheme or bro- – uh, is it the same scheme across the board that they do with every property or do they have some variety that they can do based off the different locations of some properties? Cause some properties I know they can't burn. So you get a gas line or something like that. Well, that's a fire hazard, explosion hazard, you know, high line, power line, stuff like that. Like make Mm -hmm. sure nothing gets out of control, but like on other properties that doesn't have anything that could necessarily get damaged or destroyed, you know, when it comes to, like the timber value, yeah. Running fires through it, and it again benefit the timber harvest. I mean, that's something that y'all mm-hmm. learned at Auburn or yeah, Auburn University, not University of Auburn. Yeah. Anyways, uh, with forestry school, like how it helps with timber production, but also how it can help so much with the wildlife. And again, happier leasees and they're killing more deer. They're happy to keep on paying you to keep that lease. Yeah. And, and so on.
1: Well, and it's, it'd be interesting too, because uh, again, you don't know till you ask. Like maybe there's some liability stuff that you'd have to work through there. Maybe you could get some kind of liability insurance to cover the timber company, because obviously with the timber company, they don't want some unexperienced people, uh, doing a prescribed burn. Because if all of a sudden you burn it too hot and you kill all those trees, well, they just lost a ton of money. Yeah. And a lot of time. So, uh, You'd have to address that, but again, this is why I think it's important for us as hunters to learn about this kind of stuff because it at least it, you can at least open a dialogue about it, you know, and you can ask the timber company for, or the property manager, "What are you okay with?" And being a lot more
0: informed about it too, yeah. Like after like a study like this, like you could bring this up, and it, again, it'd be worth because uh, again I haven't been in a lease or a hunting club like that I don't know how the structure is with the timber company and like who a contact would be Yeah, but like if you could set up a meeting or something kind of go over like show them this study as an example of like we would love to do more on the property in order to you know have better quality habitat for the for you know all the wildlife on the property. Yeah, is there a way we can work together on doing some of this stuff? Like if you're going to be thinning two years after the thin, could we come through? You know, could you either you guys come out and burn? Could we get somebody from like an Alabama the Alabama Forestry? What's the organization? Alabama uh, Forestry Association? So, yeah, or something like that. Something like that because they do fires too. Like the Anthony yeah. is trying to get them to come out and they'll do it for free. Like if you get the permit and everything, they'll come out and actually do the fire. I believe. Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, because we'll have
1: to talk to someone from
0: there, maybe. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, but yeah, really really interesting port uh, points. But what's this? Po- what's this right here? Uh,
1: it just says shady forests provide very little forage for deer, so work with a registered forester to thin timber stands as soon as possible. Apply herbicides to control woody vegetation and finally incorporate a prescribed burning program. Many hunters do a good job of planting cool season food plots, but few developed a good warm season program. Keep in mind that both antlers and fawns are being grown during summer, so this is a critical time for deer to have good nutrition and to switch those growth genes on. And another thing I'll just say about this as well. Um, if if you're in the south and you're hunting uh a timber company land or something Mm -hmm. especially these these large timber companies westervelt warehouser uh manulife uh there's a couple others a lot of times they they own like big chunks of land like where my club is westervelt owns uh, like probably eight thousand plus acres right there Mm -hmm. and it's several different clubs So if I was able to approach Westervelt per se, again, just thinking out loud, I don't know how realistic this is, but if I were able to approach them and say, hey, can we do like, if if the club pays for it, if we as members, you know, tack on a little extra to our our membership fee and we get money in the pot, can we do a prescribed fire with your permission, obviously approved by the timber company? Could we do herbicide treatments? Because could we do something simple like a hack and squirt treatment, even something as simple as that for timber stand improvement? Again, getting approval from you guys. And if they said yes, and then I could go to the club across the street and say, hey, we got permission from Westerville to do this. Would you guys be interested in kind of co-oping and doing some of this on your property as well? Well, then all of a sudden I go from having 1,800 acres that we get a little bit of freedom to do this stuff on to now it's like, 6,000 acres. Yeah, continuous. You get, get it approved on the other club and Yeah, you and get so it approved on. on the other club, and that's how these co-ops work. And then and then all of a sudden you're making a real difference because especially we keep mentioning quail because, you know, upland hunting in the south is a... Uh, me and Nick Adair from Gundog Yourself were talking about how it is, uh, it is no longer... Oh, crap. How a we tradition? It, yeah, it's no longer a culture. It's a tradition okay. because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. People don't do it anymore, so that we don't have like a bird dog culture down here anymore because there's no birds to hunt. We have a tradition. Everyone's like, yeah, my grandpa used to do it or now we both have gun dogs and we got to drive several hours to go hunt quail Mm -hmm. and a a lot of uh, what we talk, when we end up talking about is directed at, at public land. We're like, oh, why don't they burn this WMA? Why don't we do this? Well, we're not going to bring back quail and we're not going to improve turkey numbers by doing that on public land. Yeah, like it's three percent three percent of the state. Like yeah. it's it's a non-factor. It's private land management that's going to do it. And so we, as hunters, this is what I'm talking about. We need to create some kind of dialogue and figure out solutions because if you get a bunch of hunting clubs doing this kind of thing, mm-hmm. that's that will move the needle. Yeah. You know, if all of a sudden you have six thousand acres. Eight thousand acres of several different landowners who are really working to do this and mm-hmm. doing it right. Well, that that'll have a big change on that area, and you kind of have that throughout the state. You know, that will move the needle. So that kind of excites me about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'd like to reach out to somebody from uh, the timber company and just. I don't know. Just ask some questions. Like, why don't people do that? I I don't know if it's because that, that'd just be a hard no from the timber company. I'm sure with some timber companies that for sure would be a hard no, but again, you don't know till you ask. I think that it might be that probably like no one asks because the majority of people that you talk to in the club are a lot more concerned about corn, protein pellets and soybeans than they are the habitat. Yeah. And just to go back, like it does say those warm season food plots, uh, can have an impact, but, uh, that's fine, but if you're in a closed campy forest, it's still not moving the needle. Yeah, like it that's kind of the ice cream, I feel like, um, which I, I would really like to ask the researchers about that directly mm-hmm. and say, you know, you're talking about warm season food plots. If I've got this like kind of terrible club that doesn't have great forage quality, the habitat kind of sucks, is it really going to do that much if I spend this extra time and money to plant like a super high quality, like if I go out and plant a bunch of soybeans wherever I can plant soybeans or... Is it is that more of a tool for people who have good habitat and they're just trying to get that extra thirty pounds, mm-hmm. like we saw with the Mississippi Delta region, they've already got pretty good deer, but they can still do better. Is that more of a tool for them? Or can I use that tool and have it be worth my while? Yeah. You know?
0: But also I think it comes down to acreage. How many acres can you plant?
1: Yeah, that's very because
0: true. if like on your club it might equal out to twelve <laughs> acres maybe total. Yeah. On eighteen hundred acres that you yeah. could plant? And I'm like, is that gonna move the needle enough? No. I don't think so. Yeah. So
1: again. I don't pass the eyeball test. But
0: no, I, I think the big thing is, and this is a really good point with this study, is the more well informed and educated deer hunters there are out there that think through the lens of like a land manager, even if you're hunting public land you you know, get enough people to kind of voice your opinion on what ought to be done, especially on you know, whether whatever state you're in, um you know be able to go to you know board of directors at the dcnr you know your dnr or whatever and kind of bring up you know what you'd like to be seen done with kind of the habitat uh when it comes to the funding but also from a private landowner or you know someone that's leasing property or uh on a hunting club the more informed educated hunters looking through the, the lens of a land manager which is kind of where this falls under um i think more of the needle could be moved because yeah. if if, you're, if everybody's out there still with the mindset, like, I got to run corn, I got to feed them with corn or something like that, or put in my small little food plots and not worry anything about the habitat, nothing's ever going to change.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, super interesting food for thought there. And, uh, you know, guys, share this episode with your buddies uh, who maybe you're looking at getting a lease with or maybe your buddy who's in the hunting club next to you or just or whatever the case may be.
0: I'll tell you something interesting. Uh-huh. So we're going to talk about
1: leases real quick.
0: <clears throat> like Andrew had mentioned... A lot of leases in the Deep South are typically going to be through timber companies, but you can still find leases. If you find a, a, prop, a landowner, uh, and one of my uncles have done this, Anthony's brother, uh, Michael, has done this, where he leased property directly through a landowner who does not use the property. doesn't even live in the state. doesn't even live in Alabama. She actually mm-hmm. lives in California. And he leases the property, and she, he gives, she gives him full – like he has a check with her, but he can do whatever with the property as long as she approves it. Okay. Okay. And they came through and clear cut that property. It's two hundred something acres. They clear cut a lot of SMZs and stuff. She let them bring in a D nine dozer, and then actually open up all the ridge tops on there, um, and be able to put food, big food large, very large food plots in good road systems. But they're she's letting them. She doesn't care anything about planting timber back. So she's going to let him start working through doing prescribed fires on that parcel oh, on cool. that property, nice. and letting him manage it just for wildlife. Oh wow. Yeah. And again, that's like probably hard to find, but I've heard of other individuals who've talked about leasing property through a larger landowner who kind of sees the value that, wildlife provide, you know, from like a leasing price Mm -hmm. instead of just a timber price. And even if they want to, you know, manage timber on it, doing more of like a Savannah cut, kind of like these thin pines that we talked about and allow them, allowing you to be able, I can talk, be able to do prescribed fires on the property Mm -hmm. can make a huge difference. And again, the people I know who've had success doing that have leased property through individual landowners, not necessarily through timber companies. Yeah. And some of those properties, like that's why I'm excited to see what Michael's property turns out, because or turns out into because this spring, is when he wants to start doing the first fire on part of that 230 acres. And I've seen photos of it and it looks unbelievable. Like, dude, you talk about some saddles running across this giant ridge. It's oh, a yeah. It's a giant ridge system. That they clear cut the whole thing other than little SMZs and the creek runs through it. And just be able to manage that where you kind of do your old checkerboard effect, you know, bring a dozer in, cut in uh, fire breaks and be able to rotate certain sections because right now it's like three years old and what Anthony told me was because Anthony Hunt this year is the craziest looking clear cut he's ever seen he's like it's three or four years old there's not a single sweet gum growing in that whole thing oh wow it's nothing but broom sedge and, like, Ooh. different forbs and stuff underneath it.
1: I uh, bet that looks awesome. Oh,
0: he's like, I've never seen a Because most clear cuts down here where we're at in Alabama and probably some of you other listeners and viewers in other parts of the southeast, if you clear cut a property, if you don't play anything back, sweet gums typically will take over the property very quickly. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's unfortunate because the deer don't eat the leaves. They shade everything out. And within five, six years, it can be completely closed That's candy. the stuff
1: you're killing with a burn. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying
0: to kill that big time. That's why you're burning. But, like, how for whatever reason, that property doesn't have any sweet gums. It's not in the seed bank, and they haven't grown. So Anthony says he's really excited to help Michael out doing some fires out there and seeing like what that property could provide compared to like all those other landowners around there don't
1: do anything, dude. We ought to. And he's go got film like th- he's got something. like three
0: hundred acres now that he can do it on because he oh. owns
1: seventy five and then he's got the two thirty next to it. We ought to go film that. That sounds mm. that sounds pretty cool yep so anyway this is the i I want I, this is really interesting I want people's opinions on this I, I want to hear uh different perspectives uh I want to know if there's anybody out there who's discussed something similar with a timber company anywhere across the southeast like were you able to get anything done you know providing some value for the timber company like hey instead of doing your herbicide treatment a couple years why don't you just let us run some fires through here like you know working with the timber company to find out something that works for the hunters the wildlife and the timber company you know and and find some kind of relationship like that so i'd love to hear if there's anybody who's managed to do that so far and uh, and hear how they did it and and kind of what their structure that was Uh, And then if there's any foresters out there, I mean, I I got a bunch of forester buddies, but I'd like to hear from those guys. Uh, If there's anybody who works at one of these timber companies, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, Comment on YouTube. Email us on the website. uh, Message us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Just reach out. Like, we want to hear your opinions. Comment on the Facebook post or the Instagram post for this episode. And uh, and let's get a discussion going, man. Uh, this is a really interesting subject, and this is the time of year to have this conversation, in mm-hmm. my opinion.
0: Absolutely. So, other than that, guys, appreciate y'all watching the podcast. Appreciate y'all listening to the podcast. Again, share the show if you can, if you found this interesting and you learned something from it. Share it with some buddies. Share it with uh, some of your friends, and uh, see if y'all can make an impact on y'all's property. But again, appreciate y'all tuning into this week's episode, and we'll catch you back for Thursday's episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. And remember, guys, y'all stay southern.
1: All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? the Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. We're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise, and I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was is literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about...